So today we are finishing up our more than a year sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Now, we're not finishing over in Mark chapter 16, though. We already preached on Mark chapter 16 back on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and we've actually preached around various parts of the passion narrative itself and Mark chapter 15. Today's sermon is what happens when he dies, and we're going to be focusing on three particular verses. I'll refer to other scripture, quite a bit of other scripture, but we're going to be focusing on Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 39. What happens when he dies? What happens when he dies? I get a lot of people asking me what happens when fill-in-the-blank dies, but it's usually not about Jesus. Uh, Usually, it's about loved ones and friends. Sometimes, the real question, although it's supposedly about some friend or family member, you're really asking about yourself. What happens when I die? What happens when she dies? What happens when he dies? A lot of times, we'll hear these comments like, well, he's at peace now. She's in a better place. He's in heaven. But even if you begin to take seriously this book for a few minutes and the message of God in it, we got a big problem right off the bat, don't we? How can we be at peace eternally if we're in sin? How can we know we're in heaven? Because this book, the Bible, God's Word, tells us from beginning to end that sin breaks, sin abrogates our communion with God. And if you're going to live forever in heaven, you obviously, we're really talking about being with God forever. What happens when we die? Well, there's one portion of one short verse that pretty much sums it up as far as a couple of appointments we all have. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once. So you got an appointment with death, you will die what about it then? And after that comes the big party? No, <laughs> after that comes the judgment. After that comes judgment. It's appointed for each of us to die once and then judgment. Hebrews 9.27. I'll share some good news with you, though. We're actually made for communion with God. That's the way he made us. We're going to get, some of us will get toys and other (laughs) gifts at Christmas time where it's really important to understand what the maker's intent is and what the directions are. We're made for communion with God. That's my good news for you today to start off with. We're made in the image of holy God, almighty God, male and female, which means we're made for communion with God. You open Genesis 1 and 2, that's the whole purpose, really, or the main purpose, even before you get to our dominion um, mandate and such. I mean, really, at the heart of the matter is our communion with God, who's perfectly holy. Again, though, the bad news is sin breaks and abrogates that communion, true communion. God is holy and just, and God says... If you're going to be my people, you're supposed to be holy as I am holy. God's also a God of divine justice, and we have this issue of um, 
divine wrath in the face of injustice and evil. So before we even get to what happens when we die, and the fact that obviously being in heaven and at peace would be in communion with God, let's even just look ahead to what we're going to be doing later in this service, which is the Lord's Supper communion. Even today, how can any of us have the audacity to say we're going to recline at table with Jesus today? I mean, the the, the Son of God. Hold those thoughts. Hold that problem, the humanly indissoluble problem of how we can even come to this table today and have any kind of communion with Jesus, or certainly how we can live with him forever. Because we're going to take a step back to the big picture again. What happens when he dies? And let me encourage you always, when you have questions about yourself, the best person to start asking about is Jesus. You want to know what happens to you when you die? The best point of reference is Jesus. So, overview. The Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, through which we've been preaching for over a year, it opens up with a key verse, chapter 1, verse 1. You want to pay attention to this verse. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that right up there is, there it is, yeah. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, this is telling you about whom this gospel is written. And it's Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. And also, notice that other title, the what? Son of God. Uh, We want to pay attention to that all through the gospel. And then it goes on and says, it's talking about uh, the, the ministry of John the baptizer fulfilling what Isaiah prophesied. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. First time that word is in there too, right? We got the we asked to Theu back up there with the Son of God. But now we have this other word in there that you don't want to pass over too fast. The hodos, the way of the Lord. Uh, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Well, we didn't do a really good job of that. Neither Israel when Jesus came, um, nor do we really do a good job of preparing the way for the Lord, right? Is your house ready for a visit from the Lord Almighty today? Is your heart? Um, But we have good news, right? So we go ahead in Mark chapter 1. And let me remind you that the Christmas stories are in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2. Mark goes straight to the adult public ministry of Jesus. And he tells us about this, this prophet John, and that he's baptizing people. And then we get to these three verses. Now, if you had the Gospel of Mark in one big scroll or on a really big piece of paper, I would encourage you to circle these three verses and connect them with our central verses for today, 15, 37, and 39. They totally relate and they frame the main structure of Mark's Gospel. The resurrection is the great climactic add-on of what happens keyed to these two passages, and it is then looking ahead with the the good news of the resurrection. But the main framing of the core of Mark's gospel is 1, 9 through 7, 
all the way through 15, 37 through 39. And these three verses in, in both cases relate. So in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan, in the Jordan River. Now, these next two verses are the big deal. And when, but just remind you now, Jesus is stepping in on our place. This is a baptism for repentance of sins. Has Jesus sinned? No, he's stepping in for us in our place in this baptism of repentance for sin. But the next verses are really big. And when he, this means Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Tus uranus schizomenus. You know the term schizophrenic, right? Split personality comes from the Greek. This is the Greek participle right here. Torn open, split open. He saw the heavens being split open. The heavens were understood to separate God's heaven and God's presence from us. So already when Jesus steps in for us at the baptism, he comes up out of the baptism and he sees the separating heavens right, that separate God, the holy, and his throne room in high heaven from the rest of us, being split open, split open. Now, you're not going to see that verb until we get to our, in all of Mark's gospel, again, until we get to 1538, our central verse we're focusing on today. It's going to happen again, a splitting open. Um, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So we have, uh, we've got the Trinity in motion, and sure enough, verse 11, and a voice, this is the voice of the Father, came from heaven, because Jesus sees everything has been split open, wide open. You are my beloved Son. Remember, he's the Son of God, the weos of God, okay? Back in one one, You are my beloved Son. And, and the Father's talking to Jesus here. Not everybody else he's talking to Jesus. You are my beloved son. They don't hear it. Jesus hears it. They hear this loud noise. With you, I am well pleased. So, this passage keys up the rest of the gospel. But we've got a problem, because here we have God's own son. He's with us. He's standing in for us. Wow. If I could pray at this moment, I might be praying, Jesus I know you're one of us. I know you took on our flesh, but I just hope you live down here on earth forever. Because when we hit the pandemic in 2020, I'd really like you to have you around. We'd invite you, readily invite you to come to our church and pray for us and, and bless us and do a miracle on earth right in our presence to wipe out COVID-19. And it would be awesome, Jesus. And the only way we can have communion with God, because we know we're sinners, is through you. So why don't you just stay with us? But then he dies, right? You know this when you open Mark's gospel. He's going to die. The early hearers and readers of Mark's gospel understood that Jesus was going to die. So we're back to our dilemma again. Well, he was down here for a little while. We had real communion, with, and he could see the heavens opened. We could really have access to God through him. What's going to happen now? What happens when he dies? I hope I have your attention now. And I've set some of the key terms in place so that we can open and read with real attention 
these three little verses. Mark 15, 37 through 39. This is at three o'clock in the afternoon. Good Friday. The hour of prayer, I'll come back to that. Verse 37, hear now God's word, Mark 15, 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's verse 38. And verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So take three points here. Number one, his once for all exclamation. That's verse 37, 1537. His once for all exclamation. Number two, the once for all atonement and way of the Lord opening up for us. That's verse 38. The once-for-all atonement and opening, the total invitation to communion with God, verse 38. And number three, our once-for-all witness, verse 39, what the centurion says. We're going to go ahead and do one and three first, and then focus in on the central one, number two, as we move towards the close of this message today. His once-for-all exclamation. 1537, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This is a miracle. One of the most incredible miracles given to us in all the gospel. And you probably just read over this really fast. It's pretty easy to, right? It is a major miracle, and it's centrally important to your salvation. Let me explain. Uh, death by crucifixion was an agonizing ordeal. We, we know it was particularly for Jesus, of course, because he had been scourged heavily after being beaten a few hours earlier by the chief priest and their police, their guards. Um, so Jesus is really weak, but anyone dying by crucifixion, here's the way crucifixion worked. You didn't die from bleeding to death, typically. You didn't die from other things that you might, well, you know, the hands kind of get, you died slowly, agonizingly, by suffocation and heart failure. And the reason you were pinned up there like you were is you had to lift yourself, <gasps> lift yourself up to breathe. And, and what normally happened with a, a man who was stripped and nailed to a cross and crucified is in the early hours he was screaming many of them screamed obscenities um, complaints begging to that that there was a wrong sentence that somebody had done them wrong you know that typical kind of stuff right but as the crucifixion drew to its utter climax and as a man grew weaker and weaker he could no longer lift himself up and breathe at all and so he died by suffocation and heart. It's brutal. I mean, it's a brutal way to die. Now, Jesus is the opposite of the typical sequence. Jesus 
is silent as a lamb before his shearers, basically. He says virtually nothing except a, quoting a few passages of Scripture from 9 all the way through 3 in the afternoon. He's basically saying nothing except, you know, his exchange with the thief next to him or the criminal next to him, etc. Um, everybody else is hollering this, that, and the other thing, and certainly the two guys being crucified next to Jesus. But Jesus has said virtually nothing. And then at the point of his death... A moment before Jesus dies. This is physically, humanly impossible. Jesus somehow is able to utter, you know, everybody, <laughs> Jesus is able to utter a loud cry. It's a miracle. How did this happen? What did Jesus say? Obviously, it's a huge exclamation, it's key to your salvation. I mean, it's key to your salvation. What did he say? Well, if we go to John and Luke for cross-reference, John 19.30 tells us, when Jesus had received the sour wine, because he said, I thirst, quoting, you know, referring to the psalm, um, he said, tetelestai, it is finished, is the way it's usually translated in the English. It literally means paid in full. It's done. I've closed the books completed, perfected, your atonement is secure. Tetelestai, it is finished. That's what Jesus said. That's what he says right before he dies. I mean, incredible that he's able to claim that, a victory cry, in total satisfaction of all the scriptures and of all your sin. And, and, And bowing his head, he yielded up his spirit. That's John 19.30. Luke 22.46, Luke tells us this. Then Jesus called out in a loud voice and said, you'll remember this probably, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. What's the effect of all this? Well, immediately for Jesus, let's focus on Jesus. Immediately for Jesus, we can read in Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' earthly life, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries. We're supposed to connect the dots here with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, all the way from Gethsemane to this moment where he cries out. Now he's crying out of victory because why? The the father can save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. You could say, well, God the Father didn't take him down from the cross. Exactly. Because we're looking ahead to Easter and the resurrection. Because being saved from death is not about just avoiding death at this very moment, right? I can give you another day to live. That doesn't, that doesn't deal with your eternity and really dying. Jesus was saved from death because he was redeemed from death in the resurrection. The Father heard that exclamation cry and answered it on Easter morning. So this is the once-for-all exclamation and cry from Jesus, and it points all the way through that victory of the resurrection, all the way up to the ascension on high to the right hand of the Father Almighty, and ultimately Jesus' return to judge the living and the dead. And it points us towards the Great Commission to bring the gospel of his kingdom to all people, which brings us to the once-for-all witness. So let's jump ahead to verse 39. 
And when the centurion who stood facing him, facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last. Remember I told you, this centurion's seen a lot of guys die on the cross. He's never seen anything like this. Guy being quiet all the way through, and now all of a sudden he has this victory exclamation. The very second he's dying, this is physically impossible. It's humanly impossible. Centurion never seen anything like this. He's probably executed hundreds of folks on the cross. Never anything. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, let me remind you what's going on here. The centurion is the executioner. Yes, Pilate condemned Jesus to death, but this is kind of like the, the governor condemning you to death. Who's the guy running the electric chair or the guillotine? It's the centurion. The centurion's running the crucifixion, and he's responsible to secure that Jesus is dead. In fact, when Pilate hears that Jesus died earlier than Pilate anticipated, uh, you know, late on Friday afternoon, Pilate, we read this in Mark 15, verse 45, the centurion confirms to Pilate that Jesus is, yeah, he's dead. I mean, we put the spear in his side, the whole thing, he's dead. The centurion is the executioner. He represented the killing power of pagan Rome. So let me ask you, can the man responsible for Jesus' death directly, can the man who represents pagan Rome and all its murderous power be saved? Can he realize that Jesus is the Son of God? And the answer is yes. The centurion was among the most unlikely to recognize Jesus' divine nature, I mean, here I am killing him, right? He's just like any other guy. He's going to die. But suddenly, God opened his mind with this exclamation. Now, the centurion's confession is ambiguous at this moment. We don't know, and we're certainly not told, that this centurion came to a saving faith in Jesus as the Son of God. But he does confess him as in, in Mark, it's ambiguous, um, not a definite article. In Matthew 27, 54, possessive God's son. Luke 23, 47 tells us that the centurion says, surely this was a righteous man, meaning notwithstanding everything else that Rome and Pilate and the relig Jewish religious authorities and anybody else tells me, I can see this guy's right with God, totally right with God. Early church traditions go on and say he's a, a guy, a saint named uh, Longinus who became a believer and was later martyred. Um, that's outside the Bible. We don't know all about that. But I will tell you this. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Mark, sums it up pretty nicely, that the centurion was the first, first, in other words, on the ground like regular human being, even before Jesus' own disciples, to realize that something of cosmic significance, history-changing, your soul-changing significance, happened at that moment when Jesus died. Cosmic significance. And all this points us to the heart of the good news and the heart of the Great Commission that compels you and me to share about Jesus with our neighbors, with our family. Has everybody heard your confession of faith? Has everybody heard about the gospel from you that you know that you encounter? Because the gospel extends to even those who seemingly there's no way they can be reached by the gospel. 
I mean, it cannot get more obvious that the man under whose hand Jesus dies, that Jesus is bleeding and dying, the centurion, is the first human being noted in Mark's gospel to declare Jesus the Son of God. In Mark's gospel, that's the way Mark frames it. We've got the Father telling Jesus he's the Son of God, Mark chapter 1. We have the Father at the transfiguration of Jesus, which is recorded in the opening verses of Mark chapter 9, in 9-7. The Father now declares it to Peter, James, and John. This is my Son, my beloved, Akuate Altu. Listen to him, heed him, obey him, follow him. We have demons. Remember the demon who actually was a bunch of demons called Legion that inhabited, possessed the guy, right, in, in, in the Gadarene region? They say Jesus is the Son of God. What do you do? What do you hear? Are you here to provoke us, to afflict us, Son of the Most High? So, no, side note, if somebody confesses Jesus and knows Jesus is the Son of God, does that mean they're saved? You think the demons were saved? James says that even the devil knows who Jesus, I mean, even the devil knows who God is, but it doesn't save him, right? Because he's not in communion with God. That's not saving faith to just declare who Jesus is. It's communion is saving faith. So we go all the way through. Yes, Peter says you are the Christ, but in Mark's gospel, he doesn't add the little add-on, which Matthew gives us, but it seems like a back note in Matthew even. You are the Christ, the son of the living God whatever that means to Simon Peter at the time of uh, the confession at Caesarea Philippi. But now we have a flat-out framed, the Father has said it, now we have a human being saying it, and it's the last human being on earth you would expect, Jesus' executioner saying it. Remember 1-1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? So there, Jesus is God's Son, and we're called to the Great Commission by our once-for-all witness. And it doesn't get any more once-for-all than a centurion saying it, right? Um, Now, centrally, verse 38. The once-for-all opening, split opening, and atonement leading to our communion. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let me describe this to you now temple building inside the massive temple complex. There's the main building, okay, like they used to have the tabernacle, the main building. The biggest part of the main building is the holy place and steps going up to the holy place and and, and also offerings made out here too, okay, so, um, and, and cleansing happening out here. So, and there's a curtain that divides the holy place, normally from regular court of Israel people's view. There's a second curtain back separating the holy of holies. Kodesh Kohashim. I mean, this is, this, this is the sanctus sanctorum. This is the holy of holies, right? Where God, when he's present, is present in his holy majesty. And inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the manna, the staff, right, and the stone 
tablets of the Ten Commandments, and atop the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the throne of God, which is designated a throne of grace or mercy, with the cherubim on the side, you know, shielding themselves in the holy presence of God. There is a massive curtain that separates nobody, nobody but nobody goes into the Holy Holies except once a year the high priest with a rope tied to him so he can be pulled out if he's stricken dead or, or stricken, you know, incapacitated in, in, in by, um, by, the, by the holy presence, just a, the holy presence of God. He goes in once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, okay? Once a year, the high priest, period. Nobody else ever goes behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies. And I'm going to talk more about the Day of Atonement. But, so let me describe this curtain to you. Um, it was thick. Uh, multiple witnesses say it was a man's hands thick. Okay, so it's several inches thick. It's 82 and a half feet high and 24 feet wide. It would take an army of Levites and priests to even begin to move this thing around. I mean, 82, and, and it, it's, it's a Babylonian tapestry with embroidery of blue and fine linen, scarlet, purple, and also threads of gold and silver. Yes, gold and silver running through this 82 and a half. Anybody have a tapestry like that? This is, this is huge. And it depicted a panorama of the universe, the, the heavens, the stars, the planets, the seas, it represents, in other words, all creation and certainly the heavenly separation of God from us, right? But the opportunity and the, the, the reminder that he created us originally in his image, and this is the creator. Now, you've got this massive curtain. You've got the front curtain. Um, hours of prayer and sacrifice under the law and for the Jews, 9 o'clock in the morning, noon, three o'clock in the afternoon. The afternoon prayer time and sacrifice time is called evening because remember at dusk and sundown, you change to the next day. Jesus's crucifixion, we're told about Jesus's crucifixion in reference to the hours of prayer. Nine in the morning, he's crucified. Noon, darkness comes over all the face of the earth until the afternoon or evening prayer time and sacrifice time. Jesus dies at three in the afternoon. All the Gospels attest this. When he's lifting up and doing this miraculous cry, it's three in the afternoon. The closing hour of prayer and sacrifice on the day of preparation in Passover. It doesn't get any holier than that. And what happens at three on 14 Nisan in the temple? Second time it's happened on this day, a lamb is brought and sacrificed, remembering the Passover lamb, before the eyes of all the court of Israel. So the front curtain is opened up fully so the entire court of Israel can see all this pageantry and sacrifice and prayer going on, the evening hour of prayer. Now get what's happened. Get what happens when Jesus dies. 
you have massive numbers. I mean, it's like being out to see the Pope, you know, on Easter Sunday or something like that in St. Peter's Square. It's, it's overflowing. Everybody wants to be there on Passover afternoon. And there's all this court of Israel filled. The front curtain's open. The whole show is on display. And suddenly, back behind where the, the symbolic sacrificial lamb is being sacrificed, because Jesus just completed his sacrifice for us, the curtain is split open from top to bottom. You get that from top to bottom. It's God, and God's splitting it open. That's the visual here. That's the visual here. Jesus saw the heavens split open at his baptism, and he could see all the way through to your salvation and all the way through to the kingdom coming and all the way through to true communion. Now we get the visual in front of Israel in this temple that Jesus has already condemned but also brings atonement for us in the midst of it. This is pretty incredible. So what did it mean? What happens when he dies? Well, to help, you need to go back to Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23, 26 through 32, the day of atonement. Remember I told you, one time a year, high priest, right, goes behind the veil. But the veil is never open. Let me be very clear on this. The veil is never open. He goes behind the veil, but with a lot of pomp and circumstance and a whole lot of atoning going on before he gets in there. Because he has to change his clothes. He has to wash, the high priest does, and get into these white linens that he wears in. Okay, He has to have a rope tied to his leg, by the way. And there's also all kinds of sacrifices that have to happen. Okay, key sacrifices, sacrifices for sin and sacrifices of ascension. Those are different things. Sin offerings and what are usually translated as burnt offerings, korban olah, that means to go up into God's presence, okay? So the, the high priest does sin offering sacrifices as well as ascension offering sacrifices for himself. He kills a bull to cover the sin, the blood to cover the sin of his house. He takes a ram and sacrifices a ram as an ascension offering, okay, a burnt offering. He then takes two goats, two male goats, and one of those male goats is going to get sacrificed after the dice, right? The one who the dice falls on, then, then um, that goat is sacrificed for the sin of Israel, and then there's another goat that's going to end up being the Azalel, the, um, the, the scapegoat, okay? And, and when all this gets kind of toward this grand conclusion, the high priest lays his hands on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat is supposed to carry away to bear the sins of Israel for that year. Um, also, ram offered as ascension offering. All that. And then on top of that, here's what goes on. You can read Leviticus chapter 16. The high priest is not only atoning for Israel and for his own household. He's atoning for um, the court, the holy place, the altar, and he's actually even atoning for the holy of holies and the ark of the covenant because they're all stained by sin, by our sin, by Israel's sin. 
So what he does with all this blood, you know, I told you there's a whole lot of blood and a whole lot of sacrifices going on. He sprinkles this blood over all these areas to atone for all of them, even to atone for and to cover with blood the mercy seat of God because Israel's sin and our human sin is so great that we have to have a covering, okay? Now, by the way, it's not totally cleaned, right? It's simply a covering. And then he gets in there and does the scapegoat thing. And, and, and you know, by the way, he has to have incense. He can, has, it has to be covered with incense and smoke so he cannot see because the high priest cannot actually have real communion with God because God's too holy, so he can't see anything. He, he's just kind of stumbling around when he's in there with all this smoke and incense. That's the closest anybody ever got to communion with God. Oh, my Christian friend, oh, it's staggering what communion God offers us. So what happens when Jesus dies? Well, he opens the way totally, the once for all atonement and opening. We can read this in Hebrews 9, 23 through 28, and we're going to cover that kind of scary verse, verse 27, that sounds kind of bad when you read it by itself, pretty scary. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Remember I told you the whole temple, even the Holy of Holies, has to be purified with the blood sprinkling and covering. Be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. In other words, you know, Jesus didn't leave the cross and go to the literal temple holy of holies, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven. When Jesus dies, it's already pointing to not only his resurrection, but his ascension on our behalf. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. Yom Kippur happens every year, had to happen every year. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But it's a once-for-all sacrifice. On the cross, and when Jesus dies, it's once-for-all, totally completed. It is finished. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. Not just to cover sin. Let me, not, not just to cover sin, but to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so... Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but listen to this, Christian, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's Advent. I hope you're eagerly waiting for him. I hope your, your Advent is more, more than just like Christmas lights and, and some presents. So I hope it's about Jesus waiting for him, eagerly waiting for him. And then looking ahead, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in other words, therefore, Christians, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Remember what happens with the high priest? We have the blood of Jesus. We don't just kind of like stumble in with a bunch of smoke. We actually can enter. You and I can. All as a priesthood of believers. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. Do you see that? The curtain that really got opened for our living communion with God is Jesus being opened at the moment of his death 
so that you could come in to God's communion forever. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts, there it is, the blood of Christ, right? Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Communion, baptism, and also thinking about the high priest being you know, bathed before he goes into the Holy of Holies. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Praise the Lord, you are here in worship. Yes, we're together. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. By the new and living way he opened for us. There's that word again, the way of the Lord, the way to be in communion with God, the way to ascend to communion with God. So here we have a staggering fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies. His prophecy, for instance, in John 3, 14 and 15, he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life all the way in even a centurion. And then John 14, 6. Yes, this verse is not just about funeral services. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the way, the way, the only way. But in him, by his flesh opened for us, by his blood cleansing you, full communion with God forever. What happens when he dies? He opens the way that you can live with God himself now. Not just in the age to come, not just after you die, now, which we celebrate as we open Advent and come to his table. Praise be to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.